Chapter 9 of Niels Klim's Journey Under the Ground. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Chapter 9 The Journey Around Planet Nazar. I had now performed the toilsome duties of a courier for two years, having been everywhere with orders and letters. I was tired of this troublesome and unbecoming business. I sent to the king petition after petition, asking for my discharge, and soliciting for a more honorable appointment. But I was repeatedly refused, for his majesty did not think my abilities would warrant promotion. He condescended to refer me to the laws and customs, which allowed those only to be placed in respectable and important offices who were fitted for them by talent and virtue. It was necessary, he continued, that I should remain where I was, till I could, by my merits, pave my way to distinction. He concluded thus, Study to know yourself is wisdom's rule. The wise man reasons, blunders still the fool. Strive not with feeble powers great weights to move before your shoulders long experience prove. I was thus obliged to remain, as patiently as I could, in my old service, amusing myself in thinking how to bring my talents to the light. In my continual journeys about the country, I studied the nature of the people, the quality of the soil, and in short, became accurately acquainted with everything worthy of observation. That I might not forget anything, I used myself to write notes of each journey. These notes I enlarged afterwards, as well as I could, and was thus enabled to deliver to the king a volume of considerable size. I soon observed that this work was far from being displeasing to his majesty. He read it through with attention, and then recommended it to the senate with much ceremony. It was soon determined that I should be made use of to discover and make known whatever there was of interest throughout the planet. Truly, I expected some other reward for my sleepless nights and laborious days than still greater burthens, still heavier travail, but I could only in silence sigh with the poet, Alas, that virtue should be praised by all, should warm with its mild beams all hearts, yet mock and freeze its owner. However, as I have always had a great desire to see and hear everything new, and expected withal a magnificent reward from the really kind-hearted king on my return, I set about this work with a kind of pleasure. Although the planet Nazar is but about six hundred miles in circumference, it seems to the trees of vast extent, principally on account of their slow movement. No Potuan could go round it in less time than two years, whereas I, with my long legs, could traverse it easily in two months. I set out on this journey in the poplar month. Most of the things which I shall now relate are so curious that the reader may be easily brought to believe them to be written from mere whim, or at least to be poetical contrivance. The physical and moral diversities are so many and so great on this planet, that a man who has only considered the difference between the antipodal nations of the earth can form but a faint idea of the same. It must be observed that the nations of Nazar are divided by sounds and seas, and that this globe is a kind of archipelago. It would be wearisome to relate all my adventures, and I shall limit my remarks to those people who seem to me the most remarkable. The only things which I found in common with all were figure and language. All were trees. 
but in customs, gestures, and scents, so great was the diversity that each province appeared like a new world. In Kwamzo, the province next to Potu, the inhabitants are entirely oak trees. They know not of bodily weakness or disease, but arrive in perfect health and continued health to the very great age. They seem to be the most fortunate of all creatures, but I found, after some intercourse with them, that this assumption was a great mistake. Although I never saw any of them sad, yet none appeared to be happy. The purest heaven is never impressive, but after a storm. So happiness is not appreciated by these oaks, because it is never interrupted. They bless not health, because they are never sick. They spend their lives in tame and uninterrupted indifference. Possessed of little politeness and goodness of heart, their conversation is cold and cheerless, their manners stiff and haughty. Without passions they are crimeless, without weakness they are pitiless. Those alone to whom pain and sickness bring the remembrance of their mortality learn in their own sufferings to sympathize with and compassionate the woes of others. I was now in a land where I had living proof of how much the occurrence of pain and the fear of death tend to produce mutual love and cheerful converse among fellow beings. Here for the first time I came to know the folly and sin of grumbling at the Creator for bringing upon us trouble and suffering which are really good for us and which produce the happiest consequences. The province Lalak, which is sometimes called Mascata or the Blessed Land, was the next in the order of my journey. This land is very appropriately named. All things spring forth spontaneously. Here, between melon vines and moist strawberry, flow milky brooks and amber streams of mead. There, luscious wine from crystal spouts more merry, as Bacchus from his slumber had been freed. Far down along the mountain's verdant side, the limpid juice, with golden luster ripples. In dales, soft undulating, oozing glide, sweet waters out of teeming nature's nipples and trees of paradise their blanches reach, bending with purple plum and mellow peach. From all the land nutritious savors rise, to bless its suns, then mount to scent the skies. These advantages do not by any means make the inhabitants happy. It occurred to me that laborers in harsher climates are much better off than these people, who necessarily languish in idleness and luxury. Next to Lalak is Mardak, inhabited by cypresses. Of these are different descents or races, determined by the number or shape of their eyes. Here is a list of the varieties. Nagiri, who have oblong eyes, to whom all objects appear oblong. Nagwar, whose eyes are square. Palampi, who have very small eyes. Jaraku, with two eyes which are turned in opposite directions. Mehanki, with three eyes. Panasuki, with four eyes. Haramba, whose eyes occupy the whole forehead, and finally, Skodolki, who have a single eye in the neck. The most numerous and powerful of these races are the Nagirians. Kings, senators, and priests are always chosen from this class. None are admitted to any office but those who acknowledge and testify by oath that a certain table, dedicated to the sun and placed in the temple, is oblong. This table is the holiest object of Mardakian worship. The oath to be taken by aspirants to honors is as follows. Kaki, 
Manasca Quihampa Mariac Jaku, Mesimbri, Kafani, Krukia, Manaskar, Quimbriac, Crusodora. In English, I swear that the holy table of the sun seems oblong to me, and I promise to remain in this opinion until my last breath. When the neophyte of either class has sworn this oath, he is taken up among the Nagirians and is qualified for any office. On the day after my arrival, as I walked in the marketplace, I met a party bearing an old man to the whipping post. I asked him the nature of his offense, and was told that he was a heretic, who had publicly declared that the holy table of the sun appeared square to him. I immediately entered the temple, being curious to know whether or not my eyes were orthodox. The table was certainly square to my view, and I said so to my landlord on my return. This tree, who had been recently appointed a church warden, drew a deep sigh on this occasion, and confessed that it also seemed square to him, but that he dared not express such an opinion openly, from fear of being ejected from office, if not worse. Trembling in every joint, I quietly left this region, fearful that my back might suffer on account of my heterodox vision. The Duchy of Kimal is considered the mightiest and richest of the states on this planet. There are numberless silver mines within its borders. The sand of its rivers is colored by gold, and its coasts are paved with pearl oysters of the finest water. The people of this province, nevertheless, are more miserable than those of any other I visited. They are miners, gold strainers, and pearl divers, condemned to the most infamous slavery, drenched in water or secluded from air and light, and all for the sake of dear gain. How strange and senseless is the lust for brilliant baubles! The possessors of wealth are obliged to keep a continual watch over their property, for the land is full of robbers. None can travel without an armed retinue. Thus this people, on which their neighbors look with longing eyes, should deserve pity rather than excite envy. Fear, mistrust, and jealousy rage in all hearts. Each regards his neighbor as an enemy. Sorrows and terrors, sleepless nights, pale faces, and trembling hands are the fruits of that very wealth which their neighbors look upon as the greatest good. My wanderings through Kimal were the most unpleasant and dangerous in all my experience. My course was toward the east. I journeyed among many people who were generally polite and social, but whose customs were not singular enough to merit particular attention. I had much cause to wonder when I came among the Quambojas, in whom nature was entirely perverted. The older these people grow, the more lustful they become. Rashness, lasciviousness and roguery increase with years. None are suffered to hold offices after the fortieth year. At this age, the wildness and moral insensibility of boyhood begins. The sports of childhood only are tolerated. The tree becomes a minor, and is placed under the guardianship of his younger relations. I did not think it advisable to remain long in Quamboja, where in a few years I should be sentenced to become a child again. I witnessed a perversion of a different kind in Kokleku. In the former province, nature is the agent of this perversion. Here the law is the agent. The Koklekuans are juniper trees. The males alone cook and perform all domestic duties. In time of war they serve in the army, but always in the ranks. 
to the females are entrusted all civil, divine, and military offices. The females reason thus. The males are endowed with greater bodily strength and greater powers of endurance. Therefore, it is clear that nature intended them to do all the work. But this will keep them so busy that they will not have time to think. Moreover, as continual physical labor degrades the mind, if they should presume to think, their thoughts would be puerile and practically useless. Therefore it is plain that to the females belong the direction of affairs. The lady of the house may be found in the study with books and papers about her while the master is in the kitchen cooking and washing. I saw many mournful effects of this inconsistent custom. In other places, females are to be found who bring their chastity to market and trade with their charms. Here the young males sell their nights, and for this end congregate in certain dwellings before which signs are hung out. When these males get to be too troublesome, they are punished as prostitutes are elsewhere. Females stroll about the streets, beckon to the men, stare at them, whistle and cry psh to them, chuckle them under the chin, and do all manner of tricks without the least sense of shame. These females boast of their victories, as dandies with us plume themselves on their intimacy with ladies, whose only favor may have been a sharp box on the ear. None are here blamed for besieging a young male with love letters and presents, but a young fellow would be looked upon as having outraged all decency should he stammer out a faint yes to the first entreaty of a young female. At the time I was in the country, a terrible commotion arose on account of the violation of a senator's son by a young virgin. She was generally condemned for this high-handed and abominable action. The friends of the youth insisted that she should be prosecuted, and if the crime were proved, sentenced to mend the young fellow's honor by marrying him, especially as it could be sworn to that he had lived a pure and virtuous life till this libertiness had seduced him. Blessed Europe! I exclaimed on this occasion, thrice blessed France and England, where the names weaker sex, frail vessels, are no idle names, where the wives are so entirely subjected to their husbands that they seem to be rather machines or automatons than creatures endowed with free will and noble aspirations. The most splendid billing in Kokliku is the Queen's harem, in which three hundred beautiful young fellows are shut up for life. So jealous is the Queen that no female is allowed to approach the walls within one hundred yards. Never beholding any of their race but the Queen and a few dried-up and ugly spinsters, the poor creatures vegetate, mindless and joyless. Having heard accidentally that my form had been praised in the presence of the queen, I hastily escaped from this unnatural and execrable land. Fear to my feet gave wings. Continuing my course still to the east, I came to the philosophical land, as its inhabitants, who are principally engaged in the study of philosophy and the sciences, vaingloriously called it. I had long and earnestly wished to see this land, which I enthusiastically ascribed to be the seat of the muses. I hurried on with all possible celerity, but the roads were so full of stones, holes, and bogs that I was delayed, besmirched, and bruised. However, I endured these troubles patiently, anticipating the delights that awaited me, and well knowing that the path to paradise is not over roses. When I had struggled onward for an hour, I met a peasant, of whom, after saluting him, 
I demanded how far distant the borders of Mascatia were. You should rather ask, he replied, how far you must go back, for you are now in the very middle of it. In great astonishment I asked, how is it that a land inhabited by pure philosophers should appear like the abode of wild animals and ignorant barbarians? Indeed, said the peasant, it would look better if the people could find time to attend to such trifles. At present they must be excused, for they have higher and nobler things in their heads. They are now speculating about the shortest road to the sun. Nobody can blow and swallow at the same time. I understood the meaning of the cunning peasant, and left him after getting the direction to the capital city, Cassia. Instead of guards and the usual collection about the gates of a large town, Hens and geese strutted about at their ease. In the crevices of the gate hung bird nests and cobwebs. In the street, philosophers and swine were mingled together, and both classes being alike filthy, they were only to be distinguished from each other by form. The philosophers wore a kind of cloak, of the color of which I should not dare to give an opinion, so thick was the dirt upon them. I was run into by one of these wise men, who seemed to be enraptured by some speculation. I beg pardon, Master of Arts, I exclaimed. May I ask of you the name of this town? He stood for some time immovable, with closed eyes, then recovering somewhat from his trance, and rolling his eyes upward, he muttered, We are not far from noon. This untimely answer, which betrayed a perfect insensibility, convinced me that intelligent resulted from methodical and practical study is preferable to the torpid insanity incident to much learning. I went on, hoping to meet with some sensible animal, or anybody rather than a philosopher. In the marketplace, a very extensive square, were a great many statues and pillars covered with inscriptions. I approached one of them to get, if possible, the meaning of the characters. While engaged in spelling the words, my back suddenly became warm, and immediately after, I felt warm water trickling down my legs. I turned round to discover the fountain of the stream, and lo, an abstracted philosopher was performing, at ease on my back, the same operation that the dogs do against the study. This infamous trick excited my wrath, and I gave him a severe blow. The philosopher regained his wits at this, and seizing me by the hair, dragged me around the marketplace. Our struggles soon brought us both to the ground. Then a multitude of philosophers came running toward us, and having dragged me from under my opponent, beat me with their sticks till I became senseless. I was then carried to a large house, and thrown into the middle of the hall. I now recovered in a measure from my ill treatment. On seeing this, the wise man who first insulted me, recommenced to beat me, notwithstanding my prayers for mercy. I now learned that the intensity of no anger can be compared to the philosophical, and that teachers of virtue and moderation are not called upon to practice the same. The longer my oppressor beat me, the more did his blood boil. At last there came into the hall four sophists, whose cloaks proclaimed them to be of a different class from my late tyrants. They had some compassion for me, and soothed the rage of the others. I was taken to another house, and right glad was I to escape the hands of the bandits, and get among honest people. I related to my protectors the cause of the calamity. They laughed heartily at the whole matter, and then explained to me that the philosopher, absorbed in deep thought, 
had mistaken me for a pillar before which it is customary on certain natural occasions to stop. Just when I supposed myself in safety, I nearly gave up the ghost from fear. I was led into a dissecting room filled with bones and dead bodies, the stench from which was intolerable. After languishing in this disgusting den for half an hour, the lady of the house brought in my dinner which she had prepared herself. She was very polite and amiable, but looked at me closely and sighed continually. I asked the reason of her sorrow. She answered that she became sick when she thought of what I was to suffer. You have indeed, she said, come among honest people, for my husband who lives in this house is a doctor of medicine, and the others are his colleagues, but your uncommon figure has awakened their curiosity and they have determined to take your internal structure into close consideration. In fine, they intend to cut you up, in the hope of finding some new phenomena in anatomy. I was thunderstruck at hearing these tidings. I cried out indignantly, How can people be called honest, madam, who entertain strangers only to cut them up? You should stick your fingers in the ground, she replied, and smell the land you have got into. I begged her with tears in my eyes to intercede for me. She answered, My intercession would be of no service to you, but I will endeavor to save you by other means. She then took my hand, carefully led me out by a back door, and guided me to the city gate. Here I would have taken leave of my kind and gentle guide, but while manifesting my gratitude in the most lively expressions, she suddenly interrupted my speech and signified her intention not to leave me till I should be in perfect safety. She would not be persuaded to return. We walked on together. Meanwhile, she entertained me with just and sensible remarks on the customs and follies of the people. Afterward, she turned the discourse to more delicate matters. We were at some distance from the city. My soft companion adverted to the danger from which she had saved me, and suddenly demanded of me, in return, a politeness which was morally impossible. She told me with much feeling and warmth of the unfortunate fate of females in this land, that the philosophers, entirely absorbed by their speculations, and buried among their books, neglect to an alarming extent the duties of marriage. Yes, she continued, I can swear to you that we would be wholly undone if some polite traveler did not occasionally take pity on our miserable condition and mitigate our torments. I pretended not to understand her meaning, and showed the usual commonplace and complacent sympathy. But my coolness was as oil to the flame. I increased my pace. The poor lady, whose heart had hitherto been subjected to the sweet-smiling goddess, now changed to a fury. I fled from my new danger. Fear and length of legs enabled me to outstrip her. Mingled with her shrieks, opprobrious epithets fell fast. The last I could distinguish were, Kaki Spalaki, ungrateful hound? I passed on to other provinces, in which I found but little uncommon and peculiar. I now thought that I had seen all the wonders of Nazar, but when I came to the land of Kabak, more curious and more incredible things were disclosed to my gaze. Among the Kabakans there is a certain class without heads. These are born without that appendage. They speak through a hole in the middle of the breast. On account of this natural defect, they are generally excluded from offices where brains are thought to be useful. They are notwithstanding a serviceable class, 
and most of them are to be seen at court, being gentlemen of the bedchamber, stewards of the household, keepers of the harem, etc. Beetles, vestry clerks, and such brainless officers are chosen from this class. Occasionally, one of them is taken up into the Senate, either by the particular favor of government, or through the influence of friends. This is done generally without injury to the country, for it is well known that the business of the country is carried on by a few senators, and that the rest are only useful to fill the seats and agreed and subscribed to the determinations of the leaders. The inhabitants of the two provinces, Cambera and Spilek, are all lime trees, but their resemblance ends in form. The Camberans live only about four years. The Spalikians, on the other hand, attain to the wonderful age of four hundred years. In the former place, the people have their full growth a few weeks after birth, and finish their education before the first year. During the three remaining years they prepare for death. The province appears to be a true platonic republic, in which all the virtues reach to their perfection. The inhabitants, on account of their short lives, are, as it were, continually on the wing. They regard this life as a gate through which they hastily pass. Their hearts are fixed on the future rather than on the present. They may be called true philosophers, for they care not for luxury and pleasure, but strive, through fear of God, virtuous actions, and clear consciences, to make themselves worthy of eternal happiness. In a word, this land seemed to be the habitation of saints and angels, the only school of virtue. I was here brought to think of the unreasonableness of those who grumble at the shortness of life, those quarrelers with providence. Life can be called short when passed in luxury and idleness. The shortest life is long when it is well employed. In Spilek, on the contrary, all the vices common to erring creatures seem to be congregated. The people have only the present in their minds, for the future has no sensible vanishing point. Sincerity, honesty, chastity, and decency have taken flight to give place to falsehood, lasciviousness, and bad manners. I was happy to get away from this province, although I was obliged to traverse desolate and rocky regions which lay behind it. These deserts separate Spilek from Spalank, or the innocent land. This name is obtained from the meekness and innocence of the inhabitants. These are all stone oaks, and are thought to be the happiest of all sensible creatures. They are not subject to any agitation of mind, and are free from all vices. Free of compulsion ignorant did all obey the simple rules of nature, Justice easy and virtue unadorned they practiced, for unknown were punishment and fear. On no holy stone were menaces engraved, no holy table declared the thunderers of law. None trembled at the ruler's frown or nod, but without guard, with sharpened steel on shoulders ready poised, or castled wall bristling with murderer's tools, were all ranks safe. On no battlefield was victor crowned, or bloody altar heaped with his kinsmen corpses. With sports and pleasant tales, in infant innocence they lived, the innocence that lies in the mother's lap unstained. Thus passed they from the fond embrace of peace, with easy change to death's determined grasp. When I came to this province, I found that the reputation which these people had gained, namely, that they practiced virtue from inclination, rather than from the authority of law, was well founded.
but as envy and ambition were entirely unknown to them, the inducements to excel, and the will for great things were wanting. They had no palaces, no courts, no fine buildings. They had no magistrates to administer law, no avarice to carry them to court. In fine, although without vices, they knew nothing of the arts, of splendid virtues, nor of any of the things which refine a people. They appeared to be rather an oak forest than a sensible and thoughtful nation. I traveled next through the province Kiliak. The natives of this province are born with certain marks on their foreheads, which point out how long they will live. At first I imagined these people to be happy, as death could never overtake them unexpectedly, nor tear them away in the midst of their sins. But as each one knows on what day he shall die, it is usual to postpone repentance till the last hour. They only are really pious who begin to sing their death song. I saw several move about the streets with drooping heads and miserable looks. The signs upon their foreheads proclaimed their speedy disillusion. They counted their remaining hours and minutes upon their fingers, and regarded with horror the rapidity of time. The Creator's wisdom and goodness to us in this respect became obvious to me in this land. I could no longer doubt that it is better for us to be ignorant of the future. From Kiliak I sailed over a black sound to the kingdom of Askarak. There new wonders greeted me. While in Kabak people are to be seen without heads, here, on the contrary, individuals come into the world with seven heads. These are great universal geniuses. In former times, they were worshipped with almost divine veneration, and were made senators, chief magistrates, etc. As they had as many plans and expedients as heads, they executed with zeal and rapidity many different things, and while the government was in their hands, there was nothing left unchanged. But as they made several sets of ideas effective at once, it happened very naturally that these ideas came in contact with each other. At last they mingled together so intricately that the seven-headed geniuses could not discriminate in from out. The affairs of government became so disordered that centuries were required to restore them to the simplicity from which these all-knowing magistrates had brought them. A law had been established before I went there by which all seven-headed people were excluded from important offices, and the administration of government was given to simple and ordinary persons, that is, persons with but one head. The many-headed now occupy the same places as the headless of Kabak. Beyond Askarak, and separated from it by extensive deserts, lays the duchy of Bustanki. The Bustankans resemble the Potuans in their external form. Their internal construction is very singular. The heart is placed in the right leg, so that it may be literally said of them that their hearts are in their breeches. They are notorious for being the greatest cowards among all the inhabitants of Nazar. Angry from faintness and fatigue, I came to a tavern near the city gates. I could not abstain from growling at the landlord, because he could not provide what I called for. The poor fellow fell on his knees before me, begged my pardon amidst tears and groans, and held his right leg toward me that I might feel how his heart beat. At this I laughed, and almost forgot to be angry. I wiped the tears from the poor sinner's eyes, and told him not to be afraid. He rose up, kissed my hand, 
and went out to prepare my food. Not long after, I heard lamentable cries and howls from the kitchen. I hastened thither, and to my great astonishment, saw the humble and trembling Monsieur Poltroon engaged very valiantly in beating his wife and servant girls. When he perceived me, he took to flight. I turned to the weeping wife and girls, and demanded what could have excited such terrible anger in my lamb-like host. They stood for some time silently, with their eyes fixed on the ground. At length the wife replied in the following words, You do not seem, dear stranger, to have much knowledge of human nature. The citizens of this place, who dare not look at an armed enemy, and at the least noise creep like mice into holes, hector in the kitchens, and tyrannize over us feeble women. Thoroughly disgusted by the mean and cowardly spirit of this people, I hired a boat to go to Mikolak. On landing I missed my outer coat, which I recollected to have put in the boat at starting. After quarreling a long time with a boatman, who denied all knowledge of it, I went to a magistrate, and related the whole matter to him. I asserted that I had at least a right to demand my own property, if I could not sue at law one with whom I entrusted with my goods. The boatman still denied the theft, and required that I should be punished for wrongly accusing him. In this doubtful case, the court demanded witnesses. This demand I could not answer, but proposed that my opponent should take oath on his innocence. At this proposal the judge smiled and said, In this land, my friend, there is no weight in religious confirmation. The laws are our gods. Proof must, therefore, be given in a formal manner by witnesses or written documents. Whoever cannot do this not only lose their case, but are subject to punishment for malicious accusation. Prove your case by witnesses, and you will get your own again. I lost my case, but from regard to the hospitality due to strangers, was not punished. I had far more reason to pity this people than to regret my own loss. How weak is that society which relies for its safety on bare human laws? It is like a city built on a volcanic mountain. Little firmness has that political structure which rests not on the foundation of religion. Leaving this atheistic land, I crossed a very high mountain to Bragmat, which lays in a dale at the foot of the mountain. The people of this city are juniper trees. The first that I met rushed towards me, and pressing with the weight of his body, felled me to the ground. When I demanded the reason of this rough salutation, he begged my pardon in the most polite and elegant expressions. A few minutes after, another struck me in the side with a hedge-pole, and likewise excused his carelessness in a pretty speech. I thought they must be blind, and gave to all I passed a very wide berth. I was afterward informed that some among them were possessed of a very sharp sight, so they can behold objects far beyond the view of others, but they could not see what was directly before them. These sharp-sighted people are called Makati, and are, most of them, adepts in astronomy and transcendental philosophy. I passed through several other provinces, in which I found nothing worthy to be recorded in this history, and returned to Patu after an absence of two months. I entered the city of Patu on the tenth day of the Ash Month. The first thing I did was to deliver my journal to the king, who ordered it to be printed. It must be observed that the art of printing, 
which both Europeans and Chinese claim to have invented, has been well known in Nazar for ages. The Potuans were so much pleased with my book that they were never tired of reading it. Little trees carried it about the streets and cried, Court Footman Scabas travels around the globe. Puffed up by my success, I now strove for higher things, and awaited, somewhat impatiently, an appointment to a great and respectable office. My expectations not being answered, I gave in a new petition in which I eulogized my work and claimed a suitable reward for my uncommon merit. The mild and beneficent king was moved by my prayers and promised to keep me in gracious remembrance. He kept his promise, but not to my liking, for his grace consisted only in making an addition to my stipend. I had pointed my nose another way, but not daring to press the king with more petitions, I made my complaint to the great chancellor. This very sensible personage listened to me with his usual urbanity, and promised to serve me. At the same time he advised me to abandon my unreasonable desires, and take a more exact view of my weak judgment and general insignificance. Nature, he said, has been a stepmother to you. You want altogether the talents which clear the road to important offices. You must creep before you walk, and it is foolish to think of flying without wings. He acknowledged my merits, but, he continued, it is not such merits as yours that will give you admittance to state affairs. If all merit should give this right, then every painter and sculptor, this for his skill in carving, that for his knowledge of colors, might demand a seat at the council board. Merit ought to be rewarded, but the reward should be adapted to the object, that the state may not suffer. This speech struck me, and had the effect to keep me very quiet for some time, but I could not endure the thought of growing gray in my base employment. I determined on the desperate attempt, which I had formerly considered, to improve the Constitution, and thus, by a bold stroke, to advance my own and the country's welfare. Shortly before my journey, I had strictly examined the internal condition of the kingdom, to discover the least failing in its machinery, and the best means to remedy it. In the province Kokliku, I had learnt that the government waggles in which women have a part. For being by nature vain, they strive to extend their power in every conceivable direction, and stop not till they have procured for themselves perfect and unlimited dominion. I concluded, therefore, to propose the exclusion of the fair sex from all public offices, and trusted to get a sufficiency of voices on my side by placing the case in its best light. It seemed an easy matter to me to convince the male sex of the dangers to which they were exposed, if they did not, in time, weaken this female power. I executed this plan with all the art I was possessed of, supporting it with the most cogent reasons, and sent it to the king. He who had given me many proofs of his favor was astonished at this miserable and impertinent project, as he graciously called it, and said that it would fall out to my destruction. But relying partly on my reasonings and partly on the support of the whole male population, I held obstinately to my plan. According to law, I was led to the marketplace with a rope about my neck to await the decision of the council. When the councillors had given their votes, the sentence was sent to be subscribed by the king, which being done, it was publicly read by a herald as followed. 
on mature consideration we adjudge that the proposal made by Senior Scaba, first court footman to his majesty, to exclude the second sex from public offices cannot be accepted without affecting the peace and order of the kingdom, since the women who form the half of our population would naturally be excited by this innovation and thereby become hostile and troublesome to the government. Furthermore, we hold it to be unjust to deny to trees of excellent qualities admission to offices of which they have hitherto shown themselves to be worthy, and especially it is incredible that nature, which does nothing inconsiderately, should have idly endured them with superior and varied gifts. We believe the welfare of the kingdom requires that a regard should be had to fitness rather than to names in the disposal of offices. As the land is not seldom in need of capable subjects, we pronounce a statute which should declare an entire half of the population, merely from birth, unworthy of, and useless in affairs, to be deplorable. After grave deliberation, we declare this to be justice. Let the aforesaid Scaba, for his no less despicable than bold proposal, suffer the usual punishment in such cases. The good king took my misfortune to heart, but did not seek to change the resolution of the council. As a matter of form, he signed the warrant for my execution. Yet with his characteristic mildness, and in consideration of my having been born and educated in a strange world, where a quick and reckless head is thought to be a blessing, he commuted my punishment to imprisonment till the beginning of the birch month, when, with other animals, I should be banished to the firmament. When this sentence was published, I was sent to prison. End of chapter 9 Recording by Alan Winterout Boomcoach.blogspot.com